Well, we're getting near the end of our first semester. This is session 10 of our church history class. It's been a great ride. I would like to open us in prayer, and then we'll talk about one of my favorite uh, individuals from all of church history, Anselm of Canterbury. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this study that shows us uh, not only how dependent we are on the men and women you have used through the centuries to bring us to the place of understanding of Scripture that we have today, uh, but also, Lord, of the challenge that we receive in looking at the lives of these men and women through uh, as they uh, served in very difficult times often. So we pray that this day uh, you might open our hearts and minds and that we might understand what you want us to about your ways uh, in the church through history. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Neil, uh, Anselm of Canterbury was not a British man. He was born elsewhere. Yeah, he was not always known to be of Canterbury. That's and, correct, um, yes. And as a thinker, as, as much a philosopher as a theologian, he had to have time to think and develop these uh, ideas and arguments. <coughs> and uh, at first, that's what he wanted to do as a, as a young man. He wanted to go away. His family had already made plans for him. He was going to be a, a professional, um, but he wanted to go out and, and study Scripture. And in essence, his family locked him away <laughs> in, in his own house. That uh, happened uh, <laughs> several times, didn't it? In, uh, in I believe, uh, was it Francis or uh, w- one of the... Oh, yeah. Failures in school, failures at home. Uh, families want to sort of keep them along a trajectory of uh, a profession, but yet uh, God Repeatedly them. overruled yeah. parents' desires. Constantly. <laughs> so uh, he finally ran away to a, a monastery, and um, after living there for a while, he did not want to become the leader of the monastery, but he was made the abbot of that monastery. And the very same for uh, the archbishop. He did not want to be a bishop, but the king actually forced it upon him on, his, on the king's deathbed, and thus he became Archbishop of Canterbury. And as a devout Christian and theologian, often butted heads with, um, with the, the kingly politics and was thus exiled a couple of different times, which allowed him to, to study to, to, yeah, and exactly. develop these arguments. What are some of the arguments that we're going to be looking at? Well, um, I will say David and Sean are going to... Uh, take the second two portions of our uh, study this time, and they're going to be talking about a movement called scholasticism. Anselm is uh, widely regarded as the father of scholasticism. He was really a, a forerunner, not, not fully. But you can tell this man is a, is a great uh, thinker. In fact, Anselm marks a bit of a turn in the Dark Ages, the the ages, the Dark Ages before Anselm were extremely dark. And one of the things that we have mentioned already is that there was not much theological development during the um, those years. I, I want to say just a, a quick word about Anselm's ontological view of the uh, in the existence of God. Right. Uh, Anselm simply said that than which nothing greater can be thought okay 
in other words, you can't think of any, you can't conceive of anything greater than God, so he must exist. He was responding to uh, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God in Psalm 14, 1. It got him thinking, well, why is it? Why do, is it a fool who says there is no right. God? And, and a lot of people, I mean, this is deep stuff. That's why philosophers Yeah, yeah, and we're not going to take long here. But, but they right. do more than theologians on this point. But, oh, my, we're going to talk about his theological contribution. And on this particular argument, I go back and forth whether thinking, you know, it's, it's simple, it's silly, it, it makes no sense because it's circular. And it is circular in a sense. But then, on the other hand, it's brilliant that he it is argues for the existence of God based upon the fact that God exists. Uh, essentially that um, you know, existence is better than non-existence and we can think of things like love and justice that exist in, in people who may not exist, but the ones that do exist are obviously greater and <laughs> thus God yeah, exists. The Anselm's, uh, his thinking along these lines really had uh, some quite negative influence down the road, Descartes mm. was a big fan. And though, though Descartes was a believer, his uh, philosophical musings led to a lot of yeah. reasoning of God right out of existence by later philosophers. We'll get to that next semester. Um, I, I, I want to say Anselm, though he was a philosopher, uh, sought to understand God and he had a very famous saying, which many of you, I'm certain, have heard. He said, I do not understand so that I can believe. I don't seek understanding so that I can believe, but I believe so that I might understand. What's he mm. saying, Neil? Yeah, and this is a time period where reason and knowledge are really starting to um, come into light mm -hmm. along with theology. And he wanted. To, he believed God. He believed the scriptures. And he saw God in the scriptures, but he so desired to understand God, His ways, His creation, so that uh, he wanted. He sought God that God may allow him to understand His ways, rather than what we may think in more modern era that uh, our reason. By way of our reason, we, we get can, to God. We get to God. And Aquinas is going to take us in. And then mm -hmm. Sean especially is going to be talking. David about the scholastic Sean about Aquinas. It's going to take us a long way. And both of these men, Anselm and Aquinas, would have to be considered two of the most important theologians yeah. in all of church history. Anselm's major contribution is the satisfaction view of the cross it, it's, it's, it's stunning that for a thousand years, nobody really understood the cross in the way that Jesus came to die in our place, to satisfy the wrath that God has, the Father has against, against sin. It, it really is stunning to think about the answer to a simple question that we actually asked our, our first meeting for church history class, why did Jesus come and die? So that he can pay for my sins. I believe Colby answered yeah. right off. Uh, Colby Elmore, yeah. But for the first thousand years of the church, could they have answered that quickly, no. that succinctly? No. Right. In fact, it's very odd when you when we look back on it. Uh, Augustine uh, articulated what was already pretty much in vogue, which was a devil ransom theory. And this 
This theory of the atonement or theory of the cross or, 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 or cross or theory of the work of Christ, when we talk about that, we, we're essentially talking about why did Jesus die? Mm-hmm. Um, Augustine said, well, after Adam fell, Adam and Eve fell, humanity belonged to Satan. Rightfully, he had the rightful because he had tricked them into sinning mm-hmm. and now he owned them. Well, God wanted us back, so he bought us back. And he did that by using Jesus as a ransom. Um, that, and In fact, you, you might say, and Augustine actually did say that, he was the bait. Jesus was the bait in the mm-hmm. mousetrap. That seems a little strange to us, but we, when you look in Scripture, there's there's some support for that. There there are aspects where that position is true. Uh, it was um, originated by Origen. And it was solidified by Augustine, and, and for so many centuries, the church believed that the devil owned us because we were sinners. And when we look at uh, passages that say that. I will give my life as a ransom for many. Yes. There is ransom language in Scripture. But the question is, to whom did Jesus pay the ransom? Exactly. Exactly. So it's stunning that a thousand years it took for us to understand. When I say us, I'm lumping us in with Anselm. We're in good company. Um, To determine that that we uh, were rescued and ransomed by Jesus because he paid... His his death paid the, the penalty that we owed for sin. In fact, I, I've heard it said this way, and it's, it, I think, beautifully stated. God had to save us from himself. Mm. So Anselm uh, gives us that language, and he gives us the ability to articulate that. Again, this, this, this great man who uh, thought deeply about Christ. In fact... This is all written in uh, a, a book that he wrote. Why? Oh, what's the name of it? Um, Why God became man. Why God became man. That's exactly it. Um, well, before we move on, I want to. Okay. I, I just want to say that it's interesting from a historical aspect to to see how his argument developed. That at, at this point we're in the the high Middle Ages. And there's a feudal system of lords and serfs. Right. And as Greg Allison in, in his book, The Historical Theology, points out that, uh, say, a, a serf steals ten chickens from his lord, he not only owes that, that lord his ten chickens, but a recompense, some payment of, just, of justice, say, 15, in order to return what he stole plus the honor right. that he also took back. And Anselm looked at sinners like us and said, we not only broke God's law, but we robbed Him of His honor by disobedience. So it took someone with the character and stature of God to pay our ransom. But He also had to be man in order to identify and apply uh, that justice, that forgiveness to mankind. And it's beautiful why God had to become man. Um, is it, this is a, a case, is it not, of culture impact and theologically generally when we talk about that, we talk about it subtly moving our thinking about theology. Certainly, I think we, we think differently about divorce and remarriage than we did all 50 years ago. Sure. Um, and part of that is because we ha- have had to respond to the culture. We've had to dig a little deeper mm. and can't be satisfied with 
the simple or simplistic answers that people give uh, or interpretations of Scripture. Not that we have in any way tried to move Scripture away from what is said or tried to justify anything. But we are forced, when we're forced to look deeper sometimes, that impacts us. Most of the time, though, culture affects us negatively when it comes to theology. Here's a, here's a beautiful example of Anselm looking at culture and thinking deeply about God and coming up with one of the most important beliefs that we have today. Uh, three primary views about the cross. Why did Jesus die? Ransom us from the devil, Augustine. And as you say, that we, we would say no. We see the ransom part, but not from the devil. Right. Uh, two, the uh, su- satisfaction or the substitutionary atonement, the blood of Christ paying for our sins. And three, the moral influence view. Now, this happened. This came along almost immediately after Anselm, toward the end of his life, a man named Peter Abelard came on the scene. What do we know about Mr. Abelard? And Abelard was known for several things, one of which was his uh, impropriety with a student of his in the church. And for which he paid dearly, and we won't even talk about uh, that. We won't go there. You, so, can, you can look that up. Yeah, on a note mind. of history that we'll, we'll bypass. <laughs> Uh, but the other is that he was a staunch opponent of of Anselm's theory of of um, atonement and um, that Christ's sacrifice was a payment on our behalf to God. And instead, you, you get a real sense of Pelagian thought running through Abelard, in which he says Christ's sacrifice was necessary, which Pelagius would not have said. Right. However, it was necessary not to pay for our sin, but as an example, example. to inspire right. us to love and do better. Again, it's we can save ourselves. We just need God to give us the example. Yeah, and, and we, boy, we see that a lot. You, you, mm. Okay, so uh, Abelard harkens back to Pelagius, but he also is the precursor of what we know as the emergent church. And that is only the latest um, iteration of uh, of the liberal Protestant churches that yeah. look toward good works as the means of salvation, so the, and 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 they and that came along from from Schleiermacher, Schleiermacher. from the 19th century, right? Who uh, again was looking at a moral implication of Scripture rather than the actual justice being satisfied, and you can see that these doctrines are not being worked out in a vacuum. They are building on each other and have real uh, implications uh, for real people, not only the church, but uh, society at large, even today. I, I want to actually just read, uh, it, because this is um, shocking language if you uh, are conservative theologically, and what mm. if you believe that the blood of Christ is the payment for our sin, and it's a satisfaction, it's a propitiation, as the scripture says, where God is satisfied with the sacrifice of Christ as payment for our sin. Here's what Abelard said. Um, Not only was he promoting this moral influence view of the cross, but he spoke very passionately against Anselm. Here's what he says. How cruel and wicked it seems that anyone should demand the blood of an innocent person as the price for anything. Or that it should in any way please him that an innocent man should be slain. 
Still less that God should consider the death of His Son so agreeable that by it He should be reconciled to the world. I, I have heard actually Brian McLaren um, in, who wrote uh, uh, the book A Generous Orthodoxy. And you may have never heard of that, but believe me, it's influencing the way people think today. Uh, but I've heard McLaren on an interview uh, quoting another uh, very liberal thinker in saying that to say that Jesus died for our sins, that God put Jesus to death for our sins, is really making the Father out to be a celestial child abuser. This, this is a, a heretical language. It, it really is, especially when we look at Scripture itself, that it pleased the Father to bruise Him, and that uh, it, was a, it, it wasn't a Forced. It wasn't a murder. Christ voluntarily put, submitted Himself to the will of the Father on our behalf. So there is an aspect of love, but it was a love that was sacrificial and, and on our behalf. Yes, there's some truth in all of these mm. uh, theories, but when you look at them as a whole, really only one stands up to all the tests of Scripture, and that is the substitutionary death of Christ. Well, I'm glad you bring that up because that is a theme of our class is discernment, how we can take an argument where there is a piece that sounds good, that it sounds biblical, but how do we measure the whole idea against Scripture? And that's what we want to do here is um, spur you on to discernment skills that everybody can have a little bit right, but that doesn't mean we should give them you know, a lot of attention because that, their false ideas can have detrimental effect on, on people's lives. Well, maybe a southern way of putting this is that Anselm got the church to thinking again, or he put the church to, back on the path to uh, thoughtful exploration of Scripture. Uh, and he, 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 he gave us beautiful theology. Much more to come in this session as we talk about scholasticism and the most famous of all the scholastics, Thomas Aquinas. Welcome to session two of class 10 for church history class here at Grace Community Church. Um, this more properly should have been class one, maybe, uh, but Brad loves Anselm, and we wanted to give him a chance uh, to weigh in and kind of set the tone for what we're going to talk about uh, the rest of this class, and that is scholasticism. Uh, so in order to move forward, we have to lay the definition on the table. What is scholasticism? Um, I would define it in terms of uh, being a movement uh, over a period of two to three hundred years, uh, pre-Reformation and pre-Renaissance, uh, so late Middle Ages. This is a period of time from basically the 1200s to about 1500 that is this period of scholasticism. Uh, but if you even break the word down to get a proper definition, uh, if you look at it, schola is uh, the root of school. And so scholasticism is this movement over this period of time uh, where uh, philosophy and theology uh, were brought together. Up until this time, theology within the church had functioned uh, largely as biblical theology and then in a lot of ways uh, traditional theology. Theology developed by um, and within the church. Uh, but now, during this period of time, historically speaking, uh, universities are being founded and actually flourishing uh, during this period of time. And so uh, 
uh, as the university flourished uh, and critical thought began to be applied via philosophy to theology, um, the practice of theology uh, moved from being done in the church uh, to being done in a lot of ways in the university setting. Okay, so just really quickly, we're talking about applying philosophy to theology, and a lot of this happens as a result of the Crusades and, and some of the stuff that we brought back from uh, from the Arab world, and, and particularly uh, the works of Aristotle. Uh, and so when uh, many Christians hear this idea of scholasticism or applying uh, secular philosophy, as it were, the philosophy of unbelievers, to the, the theological structures of the church, when we, we see uh, theology moving from a biblical theology done within, say, the monastery to the school, uh, that makes people uncomfortable sometimes. There's danger there, and yeah. and and, I, and understandably so. Um, but what what do you think is the value of scholasticism? Why is it so important that we we study the scholastics? Well, I mean, I came out of an environment in some ways, uh, being at Campbell University, where uh, the religion department is scholarly in their pursuit of the faith. And for me, in this contemporary setting, uh, scholasticism evoked a lot of negative things. Um, some of the like almost danger of uh, being too scholarly with regard to spirituality. Um, and I was encountering that when I was in college. And uh, so in some sense, uh, people who are in college now, there is definitely this prevailing uh, idea that a liberal arts education um, can be dangerous for somebody's faith. And I think it's important to remember that when we look back at scholasticism, uh, practically, uh, here a thousand years ago, the term does not carry any of these negative connotations that I might bring to the table, um, but rather, this was a very fruitful time for theology. Um, when we think about just the development of theology through the Middle Ages, because we're still technically in the Middle Ages when we're talking about scholasticism. Um, and so, from the fall of the Roman Empire... Until the Reformation, you know, you have almost a thousand years of time where not a whole lot is happening, comparatively speaking. Uh, but during this period of time, during the Scholastics, uh, there's a lot happening. Mm -hmm. uh, we may have had some, you know, theologically dark ages um, from uh, six, seven hundred to nine hundred to a thousand or so. But once we hit that great schism uh, in 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 the 11th century, 10th century, like we're moving to uh, things begin to snowball almost um, because with the Crusades, like Sean just mentioned, they're bringing back Aristotle. All of a sudden, this you know thought from 300 BC being applied to theology, it begins to spark creativity mm -hmm. and innovation theologically uh, in uh, all these great minds of the time. So who are some of those great minds then? There's a whole a whole list, um, and <laughs> we're clearly not going to get to all of them through the course of this uh, brief session. Uh, but thankfully, Brad and Neil set the tone last week with two of the kind of founders, founding thinkers of the Scholastic Movement, um, Anselm and Abelard. Anselm of Canterbury was uh, you know, well known for atonement theory, which uh, Brad and Neil talked about. Um, as well as Peter Abelard, who was a student of his, but then a very much a critic of his, um, because Abelard had a competing theory of atonement. And thankfully, 
this far removed, we can look back and they don't have to compete. <laughs> but at the time, um, this caused a lot of strife. Uh, but basically, Anselm began to apply philosophy to understanding theology, and he used philosophy to articulate atonement theory. But then Abelard did the same thing. He took philosophy and applied it to an understanding of the Trinity, an understanding of atonement, and he arrived at a slightly different conclusion, uh, saying instead of Anselm's satisfaction theory, uh, which we would articulate as um, maybe the, the main theory of atonement, main articulation of atonement, um, Abelard arrived at a moral example theory of atonement, that Jesus' sacrifice compels us uh, to love. When we see the depth of God's love for us in um, sacrificing His Son, that just compels us, it causes us to respond in love at the example that He has set. Um, so there's some merit to that. There's some biblical basis to that. Uh, but that is not the only way, by any means, of understanding the atonement. And yet Abelard really pushed that as the primary way of understanding the atonement. And I think that word primary is really important. Uh, yes, uh, there there are several different uh, theories for ways of understanding the atonement, and many of them, most of them, have very good biblical grounds. Uh, uh, but as as believers, as uh, conservative believers especially, we understand that what has to be under all of them, the primary way that we see the cross of Christ is as a substitutionary sacrifice that atones for our sins. And then all the other ones build on that. We can't follow the moral example of Christ on the cross if our sins haven't been atoned for. And so while we don't want to set Abelard against Anselm, we also want to remember that there's certainly primacy to the substitutionary uh, satisfaction atonement approach to uh, Jesus' work on the cross. Um, Abelard's theory uh, raised the ire of more than just Anselm didn't really have a chance to deal with it too much. Uh, rather, a third figure in this scholastic period um, emerges to kind of respond to Abelard, and that's Bernard of Clairvaux. Um, Bernard has a lot uh, that can be attributed to him. Uh, he was a very compelling and powerful communicator, uh, a great speaker. And so as he would preach the word, um, people would respond. As he would preach other things, people would respond as well. And in fact, uh, the second crusade to uh, the Holy Land is, you can pin that on Bernard and his manner of speaking. He, he was so persuasive that hundreds upon thousands of people made that trek um, to the Holy Land because he com he convinced them that it was the right thing to do, um, and then the whole Second Crusade you know fails dramatically, and somehow in an almost a political fashion, Bernard is able to escape that controversy unscathed. <laughs> it's not his fault. Uh, they didn't have enough faith when they went, um, and people believed it because of the way that Bernard communicated it. But Bernard actually took it so far as. Uh, to go to the Pope and say that Abelard's theory of atonement and Abelard's theology uh, was heresy, and he needed to be excommunicated and just totally shut down as a heretic. And Bernard convinced the Pope, and so Abelard actually uh, dies on the way to appeal that. Um, and so we we see these three characters of Anselm, and then Abelard, and then Bernard of Clairvaux, all applying philosophy to their theology. Um, and in a lot of cases, it's cases here it's hinging on uh, theory of atonement 
But it doesn't just stop uh, with Bernard being one of the uh, scholastics. Uh, there are several other big names that are uh, living and working and thinking deeply during this time period. Uh, one of them is Thomas Aquinas, who we will spend some time on uh, separately in just a few minutes when you come back for the next video. But in addition to Aquinas, uh, Francis of Assisi is living, teaching, and thinking during this time. Uh, you may have heard of Francis of Assisi. He's relatively popular. Um, he's a, a popular theological figure to reference. Pope um, Francis. Yes. <laughs> Pope Francis uh, has pulled, you know, has chosen that name uh, as an ode to Francis of Assisi. Um, and Franciscan uh, monks derive their name from Francis of Assisi. And so a Franciscan monk is characterized in a couple different ways. Um, during the scholastic period, um, Francis uh, had a kind of a mystical experience uh, with the Lord and then uh, founded his order um, largely on following Jesus in, in kind of literal terms, uh, forsaking everything. So embracing poverty almost in, he would use the terms of marriage, like he married Lady Poverty. And that was how Francis understood how deeply to identify with the poor and the sick and the hurting. And so a Franciscan monk following the example of Francis, who was seeking to follow the example of Jesus' disciples from uh, the Gospel according to Matthew, uh, he gave up everything, had no gold and silver when he went out uh, to serve and to preach. And so in addition to living in poverty, identifying with the poor and the sick, uh, he did preach the gospel. Um, there is a quote that's often tossed about and misused in some cases, attributed to Francis of Assisi, uh, to preach the gospel always and when necessary use words. Um, I'm not going to go off on that tangent as some <laughs> preachers are often to do, but uh, I uh, I think that in his example, he's still preaching. Yes. Uh, Francis was a preacher. Uh, but Franciscan monks, uh, in, in addition to embracing poverty, and uh, following Jesus in that way, they were somewhat suspicious of like deep study and and the university setting. Uh, Franciscans would be separate from that. They did not uh, pursue that kind of context uh, for following the Lord um, in their monkish order. But uh, at the same time that Francis was functioning, uh, there was also a monk named Dominic. And Dominic founded the Dominican order of monks during this time of scholasticism. And the Dominican monks were much more interested in studying and indeed are known as the order of preachers. Mm -hmm. uh, Dominican monks were not suspicious of deep thinking and deep studying. And so they pursued um, theology in a way that Franciscan monks, I guess you could say they pursued applied theology, uh, whereas Dominican monks were applying it, but also thinking about it, protecting orthodoxy, articulating it in ways that could be communicated. Um, and ultimately Aquinas, is uh, going to be part of this Dominican order. But Francis had impact much beyond just the, the order of monks that are attributed to him, the Franciscan monks. Um, Francis had impact on two other names that are very big in the scholastic time period, the scholastic movement. Um, Occam, William of Occam, uh, is very uh, important during this time because he applied logic to theology. So in the same way, similar way to applying philosophy to theology, Occam applied logic to theology. And he was a Franciscan, 
Um, and so you think, you know, I just said they were suspicious of study, but here we have a man who is applying logic, rigorous logic to theology, and arriving at some really uh, notable conclusions. And so Occam's impact uh, for the rest of scholasticism and kind of setting the tone for uh, the Reformation, Occam's applying logic to philosophy is very important. And you may have heard uh, the term Occam's razor. Um, William of Occam developed this idea that is then ultimately kind of attributed to, like the articulation of it is attributed to Bertrand Russell, who is a, a, a famous atheist. Um, but Occam's razor is the principle that whatever solution has the, uh, the fewest complications, the fewest assumptions, the least hypotheses necessary, that is the solution that should be preferred first. So Occam's razor is whatever is the simplest answer is probably the answer. Um, and so that's, in some ways, that's a common sense approach, uh, but the way that he arrived at it logically um, was very unique at the time, innovative at the time, and is still important today in how we process things uh, scientifically. Um, and if you remember from the live class when we talked about modernity and post-modernity, um, Occam's razor was very important in uh, being a ground rule principle for thinking about the world in a modern way. But Occam also had impact um, on... Uh, a man named Wycliffe, who we'll talk about in the next class. And so mark that name down. But in addition to Occam, uh, Francis affected uh, a man named John Duns Scotus. And if there are two theologians that the Catholic Church would appeal to as the uh, height of the scholastic movement, um, Duns Scotus and Aquinas are equally important um, for Catholic theology. Um, we, as uh, Protestants, would trace back to Aquinas. Um, so both Catholics and Protestants would say Aquinas is uh, so influential, and we'll talk about him in just a minute, uh, but Duns Scotus is equally as influential for Catholic theologians. And he came out of the Franciscan order as well, and two of the things that are kind of attributed to him are an argument for the existence of God. So if you remember, Anselm had a really interesting argument for the existence of God. Um, here Duns Scotus has developed an argument for the existence of God. And so has Aquinas, which we'll talk about. In addition to the existence of God, Duns Scotus also articulated the uh, doctrine of the Immaculate Conception of Mary, which, if you're a Protestant and you hear that, you definitely, a flag goes up. You're like, wait a second, what, whose conception are we talking about again? Um, and indeed, uh, Scotus uh, articulated the theology for the sinless uh, conception of Mary, not of Jesus, but of Mary. Um, and so that Catholic theology, which is rather um, pivotal in even contemporary Catholic theology, uh, can be traced back to John Duns Scotus, who came up with this and this articulation of it in the scholastic period. Um, lastly, I, and moving through chronologically, I kind of skipped over uh, Peter Lombard. Peter Lombard uh, was a student and, and influenced by Peter Abelard. But this Peter, Lombard, developed basically the first textbook for theology, the first systematic theology textbook that was then used in the university setting. And so when we think about all the textbooks that we've been using, even Gonzalez's text uh, for this class, this idea of having a textbook that's theologically based, we can trace it all the way back to the scholastic period and Peter Lombard's work, The Four Sentences. And it was so much of a standard that anybody after Lombard who would uh, seek to develop their own theology 
they would become known by their commentaries on the four sentences. Uh, so uh, even Aquinas and uh, and Occam and some of these other scholastics, they would be known for their uh, commentary on Lombard um, because of how influential his systematic theology was. And so to tie that back into uh, today's turn, a systematic theology text is so important to have, uh, even as a lay believer, even as an uh, even as a young Christian, maybe even especially as a young Christian, uh, to have a systematic theology text. So some of the ones that we use and that uh, Pastor Brad has recommended before are uh, Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology, or The Christian Faith by Michael Horton, or even, which we'll talk about next semester in the Reformation classes, uh, John Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion. Uh, these systematic theology texts uh, are all traced back to um, Peter Lombard taking philosophy and logic and applying it to theology during this the scholastic period. All right, so here we are now in part three of session 10, and we're still talking about scholasticism and the scholastics, but we're going to talk very specifically about uh, perhaps the most important scholastic, certainly if you were to mention who are the top three to five thinkers in the history of the church, Thomas Aquinas would be one of them. I'm about top three, top five, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but... uh uh, as David talked about, if you remember, he, he mentioned Francis and Dominic and, and these orders, these, these, um, monks and the, these orders that were sort of rivaling each other. And they did, uh, Franciscans, as, as you recall, were very much living simplistic and simple lives following Jesus rooted in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, they, they welcomed poverty. They, they were, married to it they they were suspicious in a sense of the university whereas the dominican monks had a very different uh a, a different approach to the christian life and a different reputation dominic his uh his name his mom had a uh, <clears throat> dream when he was a young baby and it was of a black and white dog that was chasing her and so very quickly, there was a play on his name and thus a play on the names of those who were in his order. Instead of Dominican, it was Dominicanes, which meant the Lord's dogs. And that was the way that they approached theology. That was the way that they approached uh, scholarly Christianity. Uh, they were the order of the preachers. They were popping up and finding themselves in in monasteries and in in universities all through the West, including uh, Paris and including Italy. Uh, and one Dominican uh, thinker that we didn't talk about before, but that perhaps we could have, uh, was a guy named Albert the Great. Um, and Albert the Great was known for many things. He would become known as the, the doctor of the church, and very few people received that title just for his thinking. Uh, but what he perhaps was most known for was the fact that he uh, he formulated a comprehensive commentary on the works of Aristotle. And so he was a professor, if you will, at a university in Paris. And that's important because uh, Thomas Aquinas 
ends up at that Parisian university. And so Thomas Aquinas, we have we have a good amount of information about him. He was born 1224, 1225 in Italy in a town called Dry Rock. And literally, he was born in a castle on the side of a mountain. Uh, and he was born to feudal lords. And his uncle was actually a Benedictine monk and a very prominent one. And so it was thought from a very young age that uh, Thomas would become a Benedictine monk and would eventually be an abbot there uh, in Dry Rock, Italy. Uh, but Thomas had different thoughts. And so he decided that after studying and, and being introduced to the Dominican order, that that was the order that he wanted to be a part of. And so he set uh, in his ways, he set his course to be with them. But as was mentioned uh, two sessions ago, his family didn't approve and in an order uh, in an attempt I should say to keep Thomas from making this mistake now you have to remember uh, Dominic is not that far removed the the order is not that old they're looked on very lowly because of their attachment to the university and and these things and so his parents didn't want that in order to try and keep him from that his family actually kidnapped him placed him under house arrest for a year he was not at all swayed by that. He wanted to be a part of this order and to study under this order. And so he leaves and he goes to the south of Italy where he studies for a couple of years. And then after he's finished his studies there, uh, he he's asked to move up to the south of France to this university, or the south of Paris, uh, to this university where he studies with Albert the Great. And there he studies uh, philosophy, theology, the arts, uh, Aquinas, like many of the scholastics, didn't just have a love for systematic theologies and for philosophical theologies, but for all of the arts. Uh, and so he studied that and he was uh, well-versed in all of it. And during the course of his studies, Aquinas became very well acquainted with Aristotle, and not only Aristotle, but Augustine. And he liked both of them a lot. And he was well aware of the particular dangers, especially of Aristotle. And so part of what Aquinas wants to do and what informs his theology and, and this great impact that he has is that he takes Aristotle and he begins to apply Aristotle to the faith. And so uh, there are areas where Aristotle is decidedly unchristian. Uh, he exists well before it. Yeah. Aquinas knows this. Uh, but in the areas where Aristotle's way of thinking, where where the, the philosophical underpinnings of Aristotle help to make sense of and affirm uh, the theology of the church, Aquinas adopted it. Uh, Aristotle was loved in this area. He was called the philosopher, uh, and Aquinas referred to them a lot. Uh, Aquinas also cared deeply for the works of Augustine. Uh, he would have considered himself Augustinian. One of the ways that that played out uh, was in his understanding of predestination. Uh, he held to a very Augustinian view of predestination uh, in that God, uh, his saving work was and was thought of and conceived of and planned before the foundations of the earth. Uh, it differs a little bit from the way that Protestants might look at predestination in that because we 
have no way of knowing not just who else may be elect, but if we are elect, in spite of the fact that we understand that God's redemptive purposes and processes began before the foundation of the earth, you still needed to work. And you need to work hard to show yourself fit for salvation. And so for the scholastics and for the Catholics of that day, the doctrine of predestination was not, as it was for the reformers, a source of great comfort uh, and, and hope. Uh, August, or Aquinas sorry, was also very keenly aware of Anselm. And, and one thing that Anselm put forth, uh, just as a general understanding of God, was that knowledge of God uh, was self-evident. It, it could just be known. Uh, you didn't need reason or any other faculties to come to this knowledge of the existence of God. Aquinas, however, didn't think that it was self-evident. And, and while he believed in God and, and while he, he knew that God was rightly understood to exist and, and to be, um, viewed and, and, and thought of, the way that you arrived at God was through, um, through natural uh, philosophy and, and theology. And so Aquinas then, uh, it was very important for him to not just have reason, which is sort of a separate school from theology or, or a separate thing from faith, you know, uh, not levels wherein reason is good, but ultimately faith is the highest thing, but rather... Uh, Reason and faith not standing against each other, but playing together in order to uh, bring people to a knowledge of, of God. And so for Aquinas, <clears throat> uh, reason was, if you will, the, the steps that led up to the doors of the cathedral, uh, but only faith could bring one in. And so you could know all that you could about God in an unsaving way, uh, to, to maybe use terms that we would be more uh, comfortable with. Uh, but only faith could allow you to know God in that saving way. Uh, and so Thomas Aquinas becomes known for reason, uh, and he becomes known for these approaches to God. Uh, and one of the, the most uh, used, the most uh, critiqued uh, things that we have from Aquinas are his five ways to God, five ways to knowing God. Um, and if you're not familiar with uh, apologetics, uh, that is a term that we've touched on even with uh, um, you know, Justin, the the martyr. He he wrote, writes the the apology, uh, but apologetics proper is you know became pretty popular in the 20th century uh, as a means of almost evangelism, and in some sense of, of you know Aquinas saying reason is the steps that lead us to the cathedral door. You know, apologetics can lead us to a place of considering faith where we may not have considered it before. And and so apologetics can be used in that way, but when I was younger, I, I was way too into apologetics. As a young believer, it's really exciting to encounter apologetic arguments that give reason for the faith that we have, because it is indeed a, a warranted belief. Um, and there are many uh, ridiculously intelligent uh, men and women who have articulated um, apologetics that give such comfort uh, to those who think deeply, who wrestle with doubt, who um, are concerned about any matter of 
um, philosophical issues uh, with theology. Uh, but in some ways, you can kind of trace that back to uh, Aquinas and these uh, five ways uh, because they're they're very crucial in uh, kind of a beginning point for anyone who wants to study apologetics, um, the existence of God, uh, how to know God. Those uh, apologetic arguments um, in some ways find their root here uh, with Aquinas. Yeah, and, and what's interesting and also good to note as young or maybe not so young apologists and uh, people who are thinking about these five ways, and we'll explain them in just a second, is that they are a part of a greater work, a very large work. If Thomas Aquinas is known for nothing else, it's for just these great voluminous works uh, that he puts out. And so there's one called the Summa Contra Gentiles, which is against the pagans. And then there's another one, which is where the five ways are, uh, called the Summa Theologicus. Uh, and, and that is about God. Uh, and it's, as you can imagine, there's a lot to talk about. So much so that Thomas actually didn't even finish it before he died. Uh, but what happened was, uh, with, with Thomas, uh, he travels back from this university of Paris, back to where he was in Italy, and he begins teaching and he has these sessions where people can come and they can just ask questions and so he records all these questions all that are given and then a week later he would respond to many of them but he was writing his responses to these questions in these summas uh, and so in the work about God he is writing um, 400 500 Man, it's it's around 500, if not more, page long answers to to the questions that we have about God. And as you can imagine, that's many, many questions. And each question that was written, he would sort of give a general answer and then he would break it down into specific points and unpack it. And uh, it's important, I think, for us to know that these, these five ways that we're about to talk about were uh, part of the second question and and a very brief part of it. And so of all of these pages that he writes, um, he only spends about a page and a half, two pages on the five ways. And, and so for Aquinas, and partially because he lived in a time where I think there wasn't as much concern or doubt of the existence of God, uh, it was likely not uh, for him as much of an apologetic case as, as we tend to make it so much of, as we'll see, uh, a summation of the ways that people approach God and, and consider who God is. And so those five ways are, uh, after that, that sizable introduction, uh, the, the first way that we, we understand it is, uh, commonly called the unmoved mover. And the idea is that everything that is, is in motion. And that everything that's in motion must have been set in motion by something else. Everything moving needs a mover. However, at some point, there must have been a first mover, an unmoved mover. Otherwise, nothing would have began moving in the first place. And so he ends that argument by saying that unmoved mover, this we call God. As you can see, he doesn't say, therefore, there is a God. He says, this unmoved mover we call God, which is a very Aristotelian argument. Uh, the next way is the first cause, and so it's very similar. Uh, everything that is, is because of something else. There's a cause for it. Every effect has a cause. And so if you trace it back, what there can't be, again, is an infinite progression of causes. 
there must have been that first thing that caused that first effect. And that first cause we call God. At that point in, uh, in scholasticism and in even secular uh, philosophy, um, there was a common understanding of cause and effect. Everybody understood that at this point in time. Um, and even uh, were willing to, in, in the university setting, uh, this kind of cause and effect, this uh, this causes this, that that idea of logic, and then even this uh, this idea of um, holding one idea and then responding to that idea and then finding a synthesis of those two ideas. These kinds of ways of thinking are really popular during this uh, time in history, and you know remain popular even in the ways that we think now. And so I think it's important to remember that, like you pointed out, uh, Aquinas is saying. Uh, this is the argument, and this is this is what we call God. This is what other people have understood as God. He's not making a logical case, like an. He's not saying this is an airtight thing. Bam, bam, bam. We have this, but rather uh, here is evidence that is generally understood. That even uh, even my you know counterparts that are not Dominicans, even my counterparts who are not Christians, will agree that there is something that must be said about this principle. And I think that is a, even that's maybe the best way to approach any sort of apologetic mm-hmm. argument, any sort of argument from philosophy, is to find that common ground, find the the the, the language of and the context of the person that you're in, encountering, um, and find this place of commonality. Say, even you would agree this, right? Okay, then we agree on this, and then move from that uh, to something else. Um, so sorry to jump in with yeah, that. Yeah, no, no, and that's exactly. <laughs> Uh, what Aquinas <laughs> begins to do in that work, that unfinished work about God. Um, so the third way uh, is is the contingency way. So that word, um, what essentially he's saying is that uh, everything, there, some things are necessary, right? And what that means is they have to exist for other things to exist. Now, those things that exist around it that don't necessarily have to exist, for example, me. Uh, I am necessary to the existence of my son, but I don't necessarily have to exist in the space of the universe. Uh, I'm contingent upon something else having happened. And so he said that there must be uh, something that is not contingent upon anything else in order to make these other things. Uh, and so that thing which is not contingent upon anything else which necessarily must exist underneath, uh, above even all things that we call God. These first three are almost re- yeah. re-articulations of the They're same nuanced. basic concept. Uh, but the fourth one is, is, is not. The fourth yep. one, uh, some people would look at in a moral sense. He didn't necessarily mean it in that way. He meant more of the idea of potential versus actuality. Uh, some things are deficient. Um, so some things are good and some things are bad. And the question then is, well, how do we know that they're good or bad? Well, there must be something that is perfect by which we measure the imperfections of the other thing. That perfect thing, uh, that is what we call God. That is what God is. And then Finally, the teleological effect or, or way, and that is that everything is moving in a certain direction. Uh, we're moving to an end. Um, and, and if there's an end, if there's a, a purpose towards this, then uh, there must have been someone who 
who had that purpose and who is moving things towards that purpose, who's, who's sort of directing, uh, this whole, this whole, uh, thing and, and that, that, that director, that giver of purpose, that, that's what we call God. That's, that's God. Uh, and so these are, uh, the five ways to God and, and it's important to note, and we'll be done, I think, after this, but, uh, David Hume, Emmanuel Kant, Bertrand Russell, uh, they brought up very, very good responses. Um, important for us to know to these, uh, to sort of show, as David was saying, that these aren't airtight. Uh, but what Aquinas did was to say that faith and reason are not pitted against each other. Instead, all, all reason belongs to God. And so as Christians, we can embrace it and we can say, look, there is a reason for the hope that we have. Uh, there is a reason for the faith that we have. Uh, and so we can, it, it is reasonable to believe in God and to place your faith and your hope um, in something objective and something historical and something true, namely uh, the, the virgin birth, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so the scholastics begin to help us order the things that we believe about the faith so that we can say, this is reasonable, this is trustworthy, this is worth placing your faith in. And that can't be understated. I think in a similar way to uh, the development of creeds to give us language for those things that we properly believe, uh, scholastics then, like you're just saying, they, this just caused me to think about this, the scholastics then give us system, give us order for these things which we believe, which we would say in creeds. Now we're unpacking them even further and allowing um, uh, critical thought, philosophy, logic uh, to to have their way with theology, and then bring us to even deeper knowledge and understanding of um, of God. And we get even further beyond that, uh, moving pretty quickly through the rest of history, um, in the same way that. Uh, mentioned in the last session, um, there may have been some times of theological uh, non-development over the Dark Ages, but as we come to the conclusion of the Dark Ages, of the Middle Ages, of the medieval period, um, here in the 13, moving in from 1300 onward, it gets it gets crazy with the development of how we talk about things, how we think about things. Um, and Aquinas, his contribution to that um, both secular and sacred philosophers would recognize um, the weight that he brought to bear um, in developing thought. Um, and both, like we say, Catholic and Protestant uh, theologians and believers would trace so much of what we understand uh, back to Aquinas. And so if you've never had a chance to read him before, um, then uh, let this be your opportunity to pursue more than just what's in the, uh, the story of Christianity um, but look at some of the uh, original texts. There's a, a wealth of that online. Um, and some of these other names we mentioned in the previous class, um, look those guys up. Uh, notice the things that they said that even now contribute to how we articulate theology, even Anselm uh, that Brad and Neil talked about, the ways that we understand atonement uh, that was articulated a thousand years ago uh, by him. Uh, and so uh, we look forward to uh, finishing out uh, the class over the next two or three sessions. Um, please join us for the last session in uh, in November in person, as some of us will be uh, presenting our projects as well. Um, but uh, again, consider uh, following up on some of these texts uh, by the original authors 
uh, now that we've kind of yeah, hopefully whetted your appetite to the scholastic movement.